Well, hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. So great to gather with you, whether you're here in the room. And believe me, awesome to have friends in the room. You can laugh at my jokes later. Something to look forward to there. Uh, You don't have to, no obligation. Anyway, or if you're watching uh, us online or, and I can't believe I get to say this, you're gathered in our parking lot watching the service on a 23-foot wide LED wall. If that's you, give us a honk. We want to hear you. Yeah, well, you can't really hear here anyway, but we, we know you're with us. And honestly, I'm just so thankful that Amway's Artistry Beauty line uh, stepped up and offered to sponsor my makeup for today because that screen is huge. Okay, anyway, what I want to do with our time today is to consider the first Christmas as it really happened. Here, here's what I mean. I want you to experience the contrast between the ideal Christmas, uh, that's the one we all imagine filled with singing angels and camels and gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and a soundtrack by Kenny G. You with me on that one? Uh, And the real Christmas story. Uh, Because the real Christmas story, honestly, is far from ideal. Uh, Let me explain what I mean. If we're honest, when most of us think of Christmas, we think of something like this. Now, um, I took this footage while driving by my old neighbor, Gary Gagliardo's home last week. So shout out to Gary. Uh, Yeah, and as you can see, uh, each year around this time, the spirit of Clark W. Griswold descends upon Gary like a dove, and he unleashes a light show so epic, it makes best of lists all over the greater Grand Rapids metropolitan area, right? Uh, and, And Gary's display celebrates the moment The light of the world entered our world in the person of Jesus Christ. And that certainly is worth celebrating. But but here's the thing. When you consider the historical context of that first Christmas, when you place yourself in the real Christmas story, you start to see that the first Christmas, well, honestly, it couldn't have felt much like a celebration, at least not initially. It was confusing and frightening and even a bit disturbing to the people who were involved. Because the characters in the Christmas story weren't characters in a story. They they were people in history. Uh, People like you and me. People with real struggles and hopes and dreams and questions. And these people experienced things that were as unprecedented to them as they would be to us. All that to say, the real Christmas story It's not even a little bit romantic, but but here's the thing. I'm convinced that's actually, it's the realness of the story that makes it so amazing. Just imagine it with me, uh, what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph the night of that first Christmas as they held a newborn baby named Jesus in a cave like this one in a little town called Bethlehem. This cave picture actually was taken in Bethlehem. It wouldn't have looked anything like the wooden nativity scenes that we put on our mantles or on our coffee tables. Uh, Honestly, there isn't enough wood around Bethlehem to make any structure out of it in the first century or today. So no wooden barn, uh, no wooden manger. Mary and Joseph would have been in a cave. And Mary would have been exhausted the evening of that first Christmas, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Her life had become increasingly complicated since the moment nine months earlier when an angel had paid her an unexpected visit. See, that night she had learned that she had been chosen by God to give birth to the rescuer that her people had been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
And she also learned that this baby would be much more than a baby because God himself would be the baby's father. An an early Jesus follower named Luke actually records Mary's reaction that night in his account of Jesus' life. And upon learning of God's intentions from the angel, well, here's, here's what Luke tells us Mary said. She said, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One, that's God, has done great things for me. Holy is His name. It's like in this moment, Mary had felt loved and blessed and hopeful and joyful. But if you stop to think about it, those emotions had to dissipate rather quickly. Consider the painfully awkward conversation that Mary would have to have with her fiancé, Joseph, during which she had to tell him that she was pregnant with God's baby. I mean, as I imagine it, Joseph would have looked back at her with tears in his eyes, but they weren't tears of joy. They... They would be tears of confusion, frustration, betrayal. We actually know that to be the case because after the conversation, Joseph quietly decides to leave Mary, at least until an angel visits him as well. Then there's the day Mary had to tell her parents that she was pregnant. And once again, the news would have been met more with confusion and anger and questions than as good news of great joy. Because, see, Mary's parents never imagined their daughter would become pregnant outside of marriage. In in first century Jewish culture, that was anathema. And and that reality would become all too clear for Mary as she's forced to endure the judgmental stares of her neighbors as her belly steadily grew. As best we can tell, there were less than 400 people living in the village of Nazareth around the time of Mary's pregnancy, which meant that Everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew everybody's business. And gossip would have flowed through the streets of Nazareth like a river. Now then there's the day that that Mary learns that a Roman census has been called, and that Roman census would send Joseph and her on a 70-mile journey back to his ancestral home in Bethlehem. And rest assured, no pregnant woman has ever looked to her fiancé and said, Hey, I have an idea. Let's walk 70 miles. I hear it's as good as eggplant parmesan to induce labor. So there's that, right? Plus, I might actually get to deliver my baby in a town that I really don't know a lot of people in that's a few days' walk from home. I mean, that would be great. (laughs) But that's what they did. And they walked from Nazareth, which is in Israel's north, to Bethlehem in the Judean mountains. And archaeologists tell us that as Mary and Joseph approached Bethlehem, they would have walked in the shadow of a massive fortress palace called the Herodium. Here's an artist's rendering of what that would have looked like in those days. And the Herodium was a visible reminder that the world in which they lived desperately needed to be rescued. Uh, Israel's king at the time, a wicked man named Herod the Great, had constructed the palace only a few miles from Bethlehem on the edge of the Judean wilderness. And the Herodian represented power and control and influence and authority, the exact opposite of what Mary and Joseph would have felt that night. I wonder if, as Joseph looked up at the palace, he thought, God, I don't know how, but I think you may have made a mistake. I mean, you could have asked anyone to raise your son. He could have been born into wealth and privilege and influence. He could have lived here. But you chose us. It makes no sense. We have nothing. We are nothing. Mary and Joseph would have been overwhelmed that night with emotion. 
they were faithful, and so they kept walking, and they kept trusting. And eventually, they came to Bethlehem, and they reached the door of Joseph's ancestral home, and they knocked on the door and found themselves in yet another awkward conversation. Because, you see, Joseph's family had heard about Mary's pregnancy, and they knew that it had happened outside of marriage, and they wanted nothing to do with it. As I imagine it, Joseph's grandfather would have looked him in the eye and said, we are not having that baby with that girl in this home. She's destroyed your reputation. She will not destroy ours. You have that baby out where it belongs, out with the animals. And so Joseph and Mary found themselves walking up a hill to a cave where sheep some of whom were raised to be sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem to pay for the sins of the people, were born. I mean, Jerusalem is only five miles or so from Bethlehem. And as they entered the cave, the acrid smell from manure that would have covered the floor would have been unbearable. And there would have been soot on the cave ceiling from generations of shepherd's fires. And it would have been dark inside, and it would have been dirty, yet this was the place that God had chosen for Mary to go into labor and to deliver his son, the Messiah, the Christ, the rescuer, the savior of the world. Just imagine that night with me. Uh, you could see the stars from inside the cave that night. And uh, I, as I imagine it, Mary would have been resting after giving birth. Jesus would have been wrapped in cloth and placed in a manger and Joseph, 19 years old, probably looks out of the cave at those stars and just once again says to God, why? Well, why does it feel like you've abandoned us? Why does nobody believe us? Why will nobody help us? It's like, God, you can do anything. Why don't you do something? I mean, nobody but us even knows that Jesus was born. Couldn't you at least tell somebody well, at this moment, I imagine Joseph's eyes dropping from the stars to the horizon line and his gaze coming to rest on a few people who are approaching the cave. Because God has told a few somebodies that Jesus had been born, but they weren't the somebodies that anybody would be expecting. In his account of Jesus' life, Luke records the moment that these unlikely characters learned of the news. He describes it this way. He writes, And there were shepherds, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And if we're honest, when most of us imagine a shepherd, uh, probably because of other images that we find in culture, we imagine somebody who looks a bit like Albus Dumbledore from the Harry Potter movies, right? You know, big, long, white beard, long, flowing hair. But see, the shepherds in the first century couldn't grow beards. <laughs> most of them were between 9 and 12 years old. Many would have been poor or even homeless, for the shepherds, the night Jesus had been born was a night that began like every other night. They were just hanging out with the sheep until the moment when the normalcy was interrupted in dramatic fashion. And Luke describes the scene for us. He, he writes, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. It's great. Anytime an angel shows up in the Bible, people get scared, and the angel always says the same thing. He goes out, he says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. It's like part of angel training, I guess. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I bring you. 
And it's easy to miss, especially if you're familiar with the Christmas story, but the first people God chose to hear the good news of great joy that will be for all the people were the last people anyone would have suspected to be told first. On the ladder of social value, they stood on the bottom rung, yet God wanted them to be the first to know, which in and of itself tells us something powerful about God. I mean, think about it. Why would God choose the least influential, least connected, least credentialed group of humans imaginable to be the first to know that the light of the world was born? The only reasonable explanation is that he really wanted everyone to know that he sent Jesus for everyone, even shepherds. Well, as the account continues, Luke records that as the angel continues to speak, the boys learn the specifics of the good news. And the angel says to them, today, in the town of David, that's another name for Bethlehem, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. In other words, guys, the long-anticipated, long-awaited, long-expected, long-promised rescuer has finally come. After hundreds of years of waiting, God has kept his promise. The angel continues. He says, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. In other words, you need to know that God's son hasn't been born where you would expect him to be born. You won't find him in the Herodium. You won't find him in any palace. He, he wasn't born to royalty. In fact, as you'll soon see, he was born to poor teenage parents whose family refused to allow them a place in the home to have the baby because they were ashamed of them. This baby was born in a cave and wrapped in cloth generally intended for newborn lambs and then placed in an animal food trough. Here's a picture of an ancient manger from a site near Bethlehem. If you give the guy five bucks, I'll let you take a picture with it. So I didn't. I just took the picture, right? Um, you, you almost couldn't imagine a more complete inversion of expectation. And that's precisely the point. As Luke's account continues, the shepherds decide to see the miracle with their own eyes. Luke records that they look at one another and they, and they simply say, let's go to Bethlehem and, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Luke tells us, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. In other words, they were really there. He was really there just like the angel said he'd be. And as I imagine the scene, there, there would be tears flowing down Mary and Joseph's cheeks because the shepherds affirmed that God had not forgotten about them and that something incredible, something unprecedented was unfolding. As Luke continues, he records the shepherd's response for us. He says, you know, uh, when the shepherds had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Luke goes on, he says, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And so, my friends, that, that is the real Christmas story. And as you just saw, it's far from ideal, but, but at least in my mind, that's what makes it so powerful. That's what makes it so beautiful. Here's what I mean. 
when, Christian, when, when Christmas becomes too perfect, it actually becomes a bit hard to believe. It, it can start to feel too much like a story and not enough like history. But you see, the New Testament authors recorded a narrative full of grit and dirt and struggle and fear and hope. Because the first Christmas was a story full of grit and dirt and struggle and fear and hope. But, but it was also good news of great joy for all people, including us 2,000 years later. I mean, think about it. The message of Christmas is like in spite of the adversity we face, and this year has been filled with adversity, the Christmas story affirms that God loves us and that even when he doesn't immediately rescue us from our challenging circumstances, we can trust that he keeps his promises, that he's with us, that he's for us, and that he's ahead of us, ultimately pulling us into our future. Even if the story he's telling has some challenging chapters in it. And that reality, well, that's a cause for hope. Hope to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Hope that wherever you find yourself this holiday season, God has not given up on you. Hope that he's still at work behind the scenes in your life, that he still believes in you, that he still cries with you in those moments when you're just overwhelmed with emotion, that he still has a bright future in mind for you. And, and so my prayer for you is that this Christmas, you would experience some of that hope. Because God sent Jesus for you. Grace came down for you. And as we've said repeatedly in this series, that grace has the power and potential to change everything. Would you join me in a prayer? Heavenly Father, we gather because 2,000 years ago, you gave humanity a gift we didn't deserve, yet we desperately needed. And for that gift, we want to say thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus for all of us. Thank you that the way he came tells us so much about your heart. May we be people who enjoy the ideal Christmas story. May our homes be filled with light to celebrate the coming of the light of the world. But may we never forget the real Christmas story. May we never forget how Jesus came. It is in his name, the name above all names, that we pray. Amen.